Chapter 14 of Don O'Hara, The Girl Who Laughed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leanne Howlett. Don O'Hara, The Girl Who Laughed by Edna Ferber. Chapter 14 Benny and the Charming Old Maid. There followed a blessed week of work, a human warious week, with something piquant lurking at every turn, a week so busy, so kaleidoscopic in its quick succession of events, that my own troubles and grievances were pushed into a neglected corner of my mind and made to languish there, unfed by tears or sighs. News comes in cycles. There are weeks when a city editor tears his hair in vain as he bellows for a first-page story. There follow days so bristling with real live copy that perfectly good stuff, which, in the ordinary course of events, might be used to grace the front sheet, is sandwiched away between the marine intelligence and the Elgin butter reports. Such a week was this. I interviewed everything from a red-handed murderer to an incubator baby. The town seemed to be running over with celebrities. Norberg, the city editor, adores celebrities. He never allows one to escape uninterviewed. On Friday there fell to my lot a world-famous prima donna, an infamous prize-fighter, and a charming old maid. Norberg cared not whether the celebrity in question was noted for a magnificent high C or a left half-scissors hook, so long as the interview was dished up hot and juicy, with plenty of quotation marks, a liberal sprinkling of adjectives and adverbs, and a cut of the victim gracing the top of the column. It was long past the lunch hour when the prima donna and the prize-fighter, properly embellished, were snapped on the copy-hook. The prima donna had chattered in French, the prize-fighter had jabbered in slang, but the charming old maid, who spoke Milwaukee English, was to make better copy than a whole chorus of prima donnas or a ring full of fighters. Copy. It was such wonderful stuff that I couldn't use it. It was with the charming old maid in mind that Norberg summoned me. Another special story for you, he cheerfully announced. No answering cheer appeared upon my lunchless features. A prize-fighter at ten-thirty and a prima donna at twelve, what's the next choice morsel? An aeronaut with another successful airship, or a cash girl who has inherited a million? Norberg's plump cheeks dimpled. Neither. This time it is a nice German old maid. Eloped with the coachman, no doubt? I said a nice old maid, and she hasn't done anything yet. You are to find out how she'll feel when she does it. "'Charmingly lucid,' commented I, made savage by the pangs of hunger. Norberg proceeded to outline the story with characteristic vigor, a cigarette waggling from the corner of his mouth. "'Name and address on this slip. Take a Greenfield car. Nice old maid has lived in nice old cottage all her life. Grandfather built it himself about a hundred years ago. Whole family was born in it and married in it and died in it, see? It's crammed full of spinning wheels of mahogany and stuff that'll make your eyes stick out, see?' Well, there is no one left now but the nice old maid, all alone. She had a sister who ran away with a scamp some years ago. Nice old maid has never heard of her since, but she leaves the gate ajar or the latch string open or a lamp in the window or something, so that if ever she wanders back to the old home, she'll know she's welcome, see? Sounds like a moving picture play, I remarked. Wait a minute, here's the point. The city wants to build a branch library or something on her property, and the nice old party is so pinched for money that she'll have to take their offer. So the time has come when she'll have to leave that old cottage with its romance and its memories and its lamp in the window and go to live in a cheap little flat, see, where the old four-poster will choke up the bedroom. 
"'And the parlor will be done in red and green,' I put in eagerly, "'and where there will be an ingrowing sideboard in the dining-room "'that won't fit in with the quaint old dinner set at all, "'and a kitchenette just off that, "'in which the great iron pots and kettles "'that used to hold the family dinners "'will be monstrously out of place. "'You're on,' said Norberg. "'Half an hour later I stood before the cottage, "'set primly in the center of a great lot "'that extended for half a square on all sides. "'A winter sodden, bare enough sight it was "'in the gray of that March day.' But it was not long before Alma Flugel, standing in the midst of it, the March winds flapping her neat skirts about her ankles, filled it with a blaze of color. As she talked, a row of stately hollyhocks, pink and scarlet and saffron, reared their heads against the cottage sides. The chill March air became sweet with the scent of heliotrope and sweet william and pansies and bridal wreath. The naked twigs of the rose bushes flowered into wondrous bloom so that they bent to the ground with their weight of crimson and yellow glory. The bare brick paths were overrun with the green of growing things. Gray mounds of dirt grew vivid with the fire of poppies. Even the rain-soaked wood of the pea-frames miraculously was hidden in a hedge of green, over which ran riot the butterfly beauty of the lavender and pink and cerise blossoms. Oh, she did marvelous things that dull March day, did plain German Alma Flugel, and still more marvelous were the things that were to come. But of these things we knew nothing as the door was opened, and Alma Flugel and I gazed curiously at one another. Surprise was writ large on her honest face as I disclosed my errand. It was plain that the ways of newspaper reporters were foreign to the life of this plain German woman, but she bade me enter with a sweet graciousness of manner. Wondering but silent, she led the way down the dim narrow hallway to the sitting-room beyond, and there I saw that Norberg had known whereof he spoke. A stout, red-faced stove glowed cheerfully in one corner of the room. Back of the stove a sleepy cat opened one indolent eye, yawned shamelessly and rose to investigate, as is the way of cats. The windows were aglow with the sturdy potted plants that flower-loving German women coax into bloom. The low-ceilinged room twinkled and shone as the polished surfaces of tables and chairs reflected the rosy glow from the plethoric stove. I sank into the depths of a huge rocker that must have been built for gross Papa Flugel's generous curves. Alma Flugel, in a chair opposite, politely waited for this new process of interviewing to begin. But relaxed in the embrace of that great armchair, I suddenly realized that I was very tired and hungry and talk-weary, and that here was a great peace. The prima donna, with her French and her paint and her pearls, and the prize-fighter with his slang and his cauliflower ear and his diamonds, seemed creatures of another planet. My eyes closed. A delicious sensation of warmth and drowsy contentment stole over me. "'Do listen to the purring of that cat,' I murmured. Oh, newspapers have no place in this. This is peace and rest. Alma Flugel leaned forward in her chair. You, you like it? Like it? This is home. I feel as though my mother were here in this room, seated in one of those deep chairs with a bit of sewing in her hand, so near that I could touch her cheek with my fingers. Alma Flugel rose from her chair and came over to me. She timidly placed her hand on my arm. Ah, I am so glad you are like that. You do not laugh at the low ceilings and the sunken floors and the old-fashioned rooms. You do not raise your eyes in horror and say, No conveniences, and why don't you try striped wallpaper? It would make those dreadful ceilings seem higher. How nice you are to understand like that. My hand crept over to cover her own that lay on my arm. Indeed, indeed I do understand, I whispered. Which, as the veriest cub reporter can testify, is no way to begin an interview. A hundred happy memories filled the little low room as Alma Flugel showed me her treasures. 
The cat purred in great content, and the stove cast a rosy glow over the scene, as the simple woman told the story of each precious relic, from the battered candle-dipper on the shelf to the great mahogany folding table and sewing-stand and carved bed. Then there was the old horn-lantern that Jacob Flugel had used a century before, and in one corner of the sitting-room stood Grossmutter Flugel's spinning-wheel. Behind cupboard doors were ranged the carefully preserved blue-and-white china dishes, and on the shelf below stood the clumsy earthen set that Grosspapa Flugel himself had modeled for his young bride in those days of long ago. In the linen chest there still lay, in neat, fragrant folds, piles of the linen that had been spun on that time-yellowed spinning-wheel. And because of the tragedy and the honest face bent over these dear treasures, and because she tried so bravely to hide her tears, I knew in my heart that this could never be a newspaper story. "'So,' said Alma Flugel at last, and rose and walked slowly to the window and stood looking out at the windswept garden. That window, with its many tiny panes, once had looked out across a wilderness with an Indian camp not far away. Grossmutter Flugel had sat at that window many a bitter winter night with her baby in her arms, watching and waiting for the young husband who was urging his ox-team across the ice of Lake Michigan in the teeth of a raging blizzard. The little low-ceilinged room was very still. I looked at Alma Flugel standing there at the window in her neat blue gown, and something about the face and figure, or was it the pose of the sorrowful head, seemed strangely familiar. Somewhere in my mind the resemblance haunted me. Resemblance to what? Whom? Would you like to see my garden? asked Alma Flugel, turning from the window. For a moment I stared in wonderment, but the honest, kindly face was unsmiling. These things that I have shown you I can take with me when I go. But there, and she pointed out over the bare, windswept lot, there is something that I cannot take. My flowers. You see that mound over there, covered so snug and warm with burlap and sacking? There my tulips and hyacinths sleep. In a few weeks, when the covering is whisked off, ah, you shall see. Then one can be quite sure that the spring is here. Who can look at a great bed of red and pink and lavender and yellow tulips and hyacinths and doubt it? Come. With a quick gesture she threw a shawl over her head and beckoned me. Together we stepped out into the chill of the raw March afternoon. She stood a moment, silent, gazing over the sodden earth. Then she flitted swiftly down the narrow path and halted before a queer little structure of brick covered with the skeleton of a creeping vine. Stooping, Alma Flugel pulled open the rusty iron door and smiled up at me. This was my grandmother's oven. All her bread she baked in this little brick stove. Black bread it was, with a great thick crust and a bitter taste, but it was sweet, too. I have never tasted any so good. I like to think of Grossmutter, when she was a bride, baking her first batch of bread in this oven that Grossvater built for her. And because the old oven was so very difficult to manage, and because she was such a young thing, only sixteen, I like to think that her first loaves were perhaps not so successful, and that Grosspapa joked about them, and that the little bride wept, so that the young husband had to kiss away the tears. She shut the rusty, sagging door very slowly and gently. No doubt the workmen who will come to prepare the ground for the new library will laugh and joke among themselves when they see the oven, and they will kick it with their heels, and wonder what the old brick mound could have been. There was a little twisted smile on her face as she rose, a smile that brought a hot mist of tears to my eyes. There was tragedy itself in that spare, homely figure standing there in the garden, the wind twining her skirts about her. "'You should but see the children peering over the fence to see my flowers in the summer,' she said. The blue eyes wore a wistful, far-away look. "'All the children know my garden. It blooms from April to October. 
There I have my sweet peas, and here my roses, thousands of them, some are as red as a drop of blood, and some as white as a bridal wreath. When they are blossoming it makes the heartache, it is so beautiful. She had quite forgotten me now. For her the garden was all abloom once more. It was as though the spirit of the flowers had touched the naked twigs with fairy fingers, waking them into glowing life for her who never again was to shower her love and care upon them. These are my poppies. Did you ever come out in the morning to find a hundred poppy faces smiling at you and swaying and glistening and rippling in the breeze? There they are, scarlet and pink, side by side as only God can place them. And near the poppies I planted my pansies, because each is a lesson to the other. I call my pansies little children with happy faces. See how this great purple one winks his yellow eye and laughs. Her gray shawl had slipped back from her face and lay about her shoulders, and the wind had tossed her hair into a soft fluff about her head. We used to come out here in the early morning, my little Schwester and I, to see which rose had unfolded its petals overnight, or whether this great peony that had held its white head so high only yesterday was humbled to the ground in a heap of ragged leaves. Oh, in the morning she loved it best, and so every summer I have made the garden bloom again, so that when she comes back she will see flowers greet her. All the way up the path to the door she will walk in an aisle of fragrance, and when she turns the handle of the old door she will find it unlocked, summer and winter, day and night, so that she has only to turn the knob and enter. She stopped abruptly. The light died out of her face. She glanced at me half defiantly, half timidly, as one who is not quite sure of what she has said. At that I went over to her and took her work-worn hands in mine, and smiled down into the faded blue eyes grown dim with tears and watching. Perhaps, who knows, the little sister may come yet. I feel it. She will walk up the little path and try the handle of the door, and it will turn beneath her fingers, and she will enter. With my arm about her we walked down the path toward the old-fashioned arbor, bare now except for the tendrils that twined about the lattice. The arbor was fitted with a wooden floor, and there were rustic chairs and a table. I could picture the sisters sitting there with their sewing during the long, peaceful summer afternoons. Alma Flugel would be wearing one of her neat gingham gowns, very starched and stiff, with perhaps a snowy apron edged with a border of heavy crochet done by the wrinkled fingers of Grossmutter Flugel. On the rustic table there would be a bowl of flowers, and a pot of delicious coffee, and a plate of German coffee cooking, and through the leafy doorway the scent of the wonderful garden would come stealing. I thought of the cheap little flat with the ugly sideboard, and the bit of weedy yard in the rear, and the alley beyond that, and the red and green wallpaper in the parlor. The next moment, to my horror, Alma Flugel had dropped to her knees before the table in the damp little arbor, her face in her hands, her spare shoulders shaking. Ich kann's nicht tun, she moaned. Ich kann nicht. Ach, klein Schwester, wo bist du denn? Nox und morgens bet ich, aber doch kommst du nicht. A great dry sob shook her. Her hand went to her breast, to her throat, to her lips with an odd stifled gesture. Do that again, I cried, and shook Alma Flugel sharply by the shoulder. Do that again. Her startled blue eyes looked into mine. "'What do you mean?' she asked. "'That—that that gesture. I've seen it, somewhere. That trick of pressing the hand to the breast, to the throat, to the lips. Oh!' Suddenly I knew. I lifted the drooping head and rumpled its neat braids and laughed down into the startled face. "'She's here!' I shouted and started a dance of triumph on the shaky floor of the old arbor. "'I know her. From the moment I saw you the resemblance haunted me.' 
and then as Alma Flugel continued to stare, while the stunned bewilderment grew in her eyes, "'Why, I have one-fourth interest in your own nephew this very minute, and his name is Benny.' Whereupon Alma Flugel fainted quietly away in the chilly little grape arbor with her head on my shoulder. I called myself savage names as I chafed her hands and did all the foolish, futile things that distracted humans think of at such times, wondering meanwhile if I had been quite mad to discern a resemblance between this simple, clear-eyed gentle German woman and the battered, ragged, swaying figure that had stood at the judge's bench. Suddenly Alma Flugel opened her eyes. Recognition dawned in them slowly. Then with a jerk she sat upright, her trembling hands clinging to me. "'Where is she? Take me to her. Ach, you are sure? Sure?' "'Lordy, I hope so. Come, you must let me help you into the house. And where's the nearest telephone? Never mind, I'll find one.' When I had succeeded in finding the nearest drug store, I spent a wild ten minutes telephoning the surprised little probation officer, then Frau Nurlanger, and finally Blackie, for no particular reason. I shrieked my story over the wire and disconnected incoherent sentences. Then I rushed back to the little cottage where Alma Flugel and I waited with what patience we could summon. Blackie was the first to arrive. He required few explanations. That is one of the nicest things about Blackie. He understands by leaps and bounds while others crawl to comprehension. But when Frau Nurlanger came, with Benny in tow, there were tears and exclamations, followed by a little stricken silence on the part of Frau Nurlanger when she saw Benny snatched to the breast of this weeping woman. So it was that in the midst of the confusion we did not hear the approach of the probation officer and her charge. They came up the path to the door, and there the little sister turned the knob, and it yielded under her fingers, and the old door swung open, and so she entered the house quite as Alma Flugel had planned she should, except that the roses were not blooming along the edge of the sunken brick walk. She entered the room in silence, and no one could have recognized in this pretty fragile creature the pitiful wreck of the juvenile court. And when Alma Flugel saw the face of the little sister, the poor, marred, stricken face, her own face became terrible in its agony. She put Benny down very gently, rose, and took the shaking little figure in her strong arms and held it as though never to let it go again. There were little broken words of love and pity, she called her Lambkin and Little One, and so Frau Nurlanger and Blackie and I stole away, after a whispered consultation with the little probation officer. Blackie had come in his red runabout, and now he tucked us into it, feigning a deep disgust. "'I'd like to know where I enter into this little drama,' he growled. "'Ain't I got nothing to do but run around town uniting long-lost sisters and orphans?' "'Now, Blackie, you know you would never have forgiven me if I had left you out of this. "'Besides, you must hustle around and see that they need not move out of that dear little cottage. "'Now don't say a word. You'll never have a greater chance to act the fairy godmother.' Frau Nurlanger's hand sought mine, and I squeezed it in silent sympathy. Poor little Frau Nurlanger, the happiness of another had brought her only sorrow, and she had kissed Benny goodbye with the knowledge that the little blue-painted bed with its faded red roses would again stand empty in the gloom of the Knopf attic. Norberg glanced up quickly as I entered the city room. "'Get something good on that South Side story?' he asked. "'Why, no,' I answered. "'You were mistaken about that. The, the nice old maid is not going to move after all.'" End of chapter 14